When I was eight years old, my mom dad dragged me to uh, church. Uh, I kind of grew up at church. I teethed on the pews, all those kind of things. Uh, didn't care for it a whole lot. I think the pastor went way too long preaching, so I'm kind of conscious of that. So I'm kind of getting back at everybody now for what I had to endure. Um, at Awana Club, when it was, I was eight years old, I, I was there, and I usually goofed around all the time when I was at Awana. I was just there because I was kind of speedy, and so I enjoyed the games, hated the Bible memory, uh, hated listening to the Bible stories. But one night I was listening, and the, the, the gentleman shared something that I probably have heard a thousand times, because even though I was only eight, I grew up in the church. But as he, as he shared and talked about how there really is a God, and he, he wants a relationship with you and he loves you, but, but you're pretty much a sinner and he didn't have to do a lot of convincing there. I was a lying, filthy mouth, vandal little kid, so I knew. Um, but he said, God can't hang out with sinners because he's holy, but he wants to. And so that's why he sent Jesus to die for you. And so I thought this was the greatest news in the world. So I went home that, that night and got up on my bunk bed and I surrendered my life to Christ and said, Lord, I had no clue you were really real or really wanted to know me. And uh, thus began my journey. So that, that's my story. Now my father's story, a little bit different. My dad grew up on the other side of the tracks, very much a hillbilly in Tennessee, um, I mean, think of coon dogs and still in the backyard and junk cars in the front yard. This is getting close. Um, his family didn't have anything to do with, with God. It wasn't that they were opposed. They just didn't know anything about him. My dad lived his life as if he didn't know anything about him nor cared to. And then when he was 30 years old, we were going through sort of a crisis. And my dad met a man who said, I thank God for this guy, who said, Bob, uh, we got to deal with this crisis properly. But let me ask you a question. Do you know God's son, Jesus? And if you were to die right now, would God let you into heaven? And my dad said, I, I don't know. I don't think so. Started a quest, my dad, for several weeks. Culminated in, in him realizing that there was a God. It was not him. That Jesus was his, his son who died for him. And my dad surrendered his life to Christ. Uh, I'm guessing that most of us in here have a, a, a story along those sort of lines, a spiritual story. Probably you, you may, if you don't, that's, that's okay. But let me ask you uh, some questions and just kind of uh, demonstrate with, your, with a handheld for a second. How many folk in here, your parents are the ones that introduced you to Christ? All right, all right. The parents will tell you that's you have more power than you know. Um, how many folk in here, you came to understand Christ through a Sunday school teacher, a youth worker, somebody in the church? Anybody? Good. Um, how about college? I don't know if it's Campus Crusade, roommates. But in college era is when you came to know Christ. Yeah, yeah. Adult? Let me ask you one other question that may overlap with those. When you came to know Christ, was it in the midst of a crisis of, of sorts. We don't have to elaborate on, on that, but just things weren't real good. And maybe that's what God used to get your attention, crisis type. You know, I really enjoy listening to other people's stories and hearing what God has done to get them there. Uh, they're inspiring for me. I read biographies. It's kind of like a hobby of mine, Christian biographies, because I want to see how God has has reached into someone's life. You know, when, when for myself, when my faith is, is cold and my eyes are dry and my, my, my prayers are plastic, 
for me to, to see and hear how God is still working and he's reaching into other people's lives when I'm convinced that hell has got the reins and Satan is leading the parade in this world to see God working and moving and he hasn't gone, that is incredibly hopeful filling for, for me. I, I trust for you, too. Uh, the reason why I say that is because this morning we want to, we're coming in our, in our study to Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel chapter 4 is a very unique chapter. I think it's the only chapter in the Old Testament, anyway, that's written by a non-Jew. It's actually written by this pagan king. It's not really a pagan when it's all, all done. But this guy, it's his story. And his story, this, this guy made Adolf Hitler look like a Girl Scout. He was just very, in, he's the last person you would think this guy's ever coming to, to know the Lord. And as he tells us his story in Daniel 4, we're going to be looking at this morning. Here's what we want to ask ourselves. Why is this text here? I mean, couldn't it just been left out of the Bible? Really, would we be any less off for it? Why is this here? And I think, as we look through it, there's at least two reasons that can make a huge impact as we try to live our life in this world. So if you've got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel 4. And we're going to start off in, in verse 4. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar ruled the Neo-Babylonian Empire, went all the way down from Egypt, Egypt to Midway, Iran, uh, 605 to 562 BC. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar needed a palace home, and so Babylon was it. According to Herodotus, Babylon was the greatest city. According to all estimates, there was no city in the world larger than Babylon at that time. And Babylon matched in magnificence what it was in size. It is mentioned in the Babylonian chronicles, their, their records, 126 pages just to list out the inscriptions that are on the buildings in Babylon. I mean, a, a fascinating place. If, if Nebuchadnezzar was to go out on his palace overlooking Babylon, he would see the sun maybe glistening off the Euphrates River as it flowed right through the center of the city. He would see the trading ships as the gates opened and the trading ships came into the city and dropped off their cargo and picked up more and went on out the other side. As he watched the bridges that kind of connected East and West Babylon, he would see his soldiers lining the bridges. And he maybe he'd be reminded of the, the formidable war machine that Babylon was. To our knowledge, historically speaking, Nebuchadnezzar never lost a battle, ever. This guy never bowed down to anybody. If you were to go to the west wing of his palace and you were to look on the, the, the north wall, you would see pictures of pharaohs and generals and princes and warlords and kings and queens. You know, may they rest in peace. But folk who, who bowed down to Nebuchadnezzar, but he bowed down to nobody. He was betting a thousand in, in the war game. And this was not just an armchair general person. He didn't make decisions from a comfy office in a cozy chair and push buttons. Whenever there was a major war, Nebuchadnezzar would go get in his war chariot and literally lead his armies into battle. And he was able to still be alive to tell about this because you know he's the number one target when they get into war. And, and he had won the honor and the, the respect of his, of his people. 
As, as Nebuchadnezzar is on the palace looking over, over Babylon, he, he might see the 16 different uh, pinnacles of the 53 temples that they have in Babylon. Um, the largest is the ziggurat to his god Marduk, which was a football and field and a half long, a football field and a half wide, and a football field and a half tall. Massive. There were 180 altars to Ishtar in his city. Uh, archaeologists have found a big golden uh, statue of, of Baal or a big, and a big golden table, each one weighing 50,000 pounds solid gold. They also found an 18-foot statue of a man that if you were to put it on a pedestal would be look awful similar to the statue that's described in Daniel chapter 3. Uh, the, the streets were, 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 were paved with, with rocks, uh, special stones. Nebuchadnezzar's walls around his city, they say that they're 100 feet tall. Now, I'm, from the floor to the ceiling, it's about 50 feet so double the height in the height of the walls. This is before there's power tools and cranes. These guys, the, the walls are 25 feet wide. They say that a four-horse chariot could turn around on the walls. No problem. And there were 20 to 50 miles of walls around Babylon. And then there were 75 feet and another section of walls that would go down at least 35 feet into the ground. Then there was a deep and wide moat. Nobody could get into Babylon. You'd be foolish to try to attack it anyway. But, but still, just in case, Nebuchadnezzar had everything. He was surrounded by the wisest men in the world, the be- most beautiful harem in, in the world, the most uh, talented musicians in the world, the greatest artisans. It's said that he would start wars, battles, for the sole purpose of bringing back artisans and skilled people to help build his Babylon. Babylon was his magnus opum thing. It was it. Was it. it was what he was about. Babylon. So when he says here, I was at home in my palace contented and prosperous. I guess he probably was. That's, that's right. The, the word prosperous, and it's going to come back later on, is a word that means to grow green. It's a picture of a tree. It's a big tree by the water and strong. And, and that, that's what he's thinking. But, and I don't have this one on the screen, but he says in verse 5, he says, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was laying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, Nebuchadnezzar knew what most of us don't know, what probably half a dozen men in the history of the world know, people who have absolutely everything, that still there are things that keep you up at night. He's got it all. Still, he's got some questions. He's got some issues. He's he's, he's, He's afraid. Nebuchadnezzar's afraid. He's afraid. Most powerful man in the world, you're afraid. He's afraid. And so he calls in all the best, wisest people in the world, whether they're wearing broker suits or whether they're wearing scrubs or whether they're carrying attorney's cases. He calls in his counselors, the best. And you know what? They can't help him. Isn't that typical of today? They, they, there's, only, there's a limitation there. They can't help him. He doesn't. So he ends up calling in Daniel. He says, Daniel, I've got to hit this dream. And I realize that the Spirit of God hangs out in you, so can you tell me the dream? Uh, Let me know. Let me give it to you, and you interpret it. In verse 10, he says, These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Now, the middle of the land, it's it's preeminent. Everything else rotates around this, this tree. This is, by the way, this is not necessarily what God is going to be saying. This is Nebuchadnezzar's mindset. He says, says that 
its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. By the way, uh, several thousand years before this, maybe in the exact same place, Genesis chapter 11, a handful of people got together and built a tower to the sky, the Tower of Babel. It was, it was a, a sign of deification of me. I don't, I don't need God. This is a picture of him being God is what it comes down to. It says it's, it's leaves. Well, it says, first of all, it's, it's visible to the ends of the earth and its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter and the birds of the air lived in its branches and from it, every creature was fed. This is, so far, the dream is a halfway decent dream, but then the dream takes a turn, turns into a nightmare. It says, in the visions while I was lying on my bed, I looked. And there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. And they change from the metaphor to human understanding. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from the mind of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal. Till seven times, probably seven years, pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So that. Now, get that, so that. Uh, This is a great verse. Actually, this is the key verse of this chapter. You're going to find the reiteration of this verse in verse 25. And then again in verse 32. This is something God really wants Nebuchadnezzar to get. All this dream stuff is happening so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the the lowliest of men. In other words, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what God wants you to understand. That you, in your dream, the the tree, there is a God, but it's not you. There is a sovereign God over the whole world, even over Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar, you need to know that God gives it to you. You didn't earn your Babylon. No, no, no. You didn't go out and take your Babylon. And it's it's not something you you are entitled to because you got the right bloodline. God gave you. That. And you need to know that God did not give you Babylon because you're more powerful and you're more uh, cool and, and you're more royal and you're more whatever else. No, no. He gives it to the lowliest of men. He gives it to whoever he chooses. That's why you got it. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's not real sure if that's what it is. Nebuchadnezzar has a problem called pride. Pride is, and also definitions on pride, this one helps me the most. Pride is seeing God's gifts. As my trophies. You see this? Seeing God's gifts as my trophies. They're, they're, they're gifts that God gave so that we would see his faithfulness and his love. So that we would, we would, he gave us these gifts so that we would praise him. But how do I see them? I see them as trophies. They're exhibits of my perseverance and my abilities and my success and my wisdom and my, my talent. See, that, that's, that's what they really are. That's pride. Now, the bride has is, is, got a terrible heritage. It starts in Ezekiel 28, perhaps before the beginning of time. It's talking about Satan here. He says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. 
Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald, topaz, and onyx, and jasper, lapis, and sarsal, turquoise, and beryl, your settings and mountings made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You didn't get to this point because you deserved it. Because you worked your way up through the ranks and you were smarter and better. Because I just anointed you. That's how you got there. You were on the holy mount of God and you walked among the fiery stones. That's the, the other angels. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones from the other angels. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. These gifts that God gave began thinking, look at me, I'm better than the other angels. I should be God. That's where where he was going. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. Pride ends up in judgment. Pride always ends up in in judgment. Satan takes his mindset, right, to the Garden of of Eden. Adam and Eve are there. And instead of of them focusing on all the stuff that God has given them, Satan helps them focus on the one thing that God said no to. And, and, And so Adam and Eve get to this crossroads. They can either choose to trust God or they can choose to trust their own reasoning, their own thinking, their own understanding, and we know which way they go. That's pride. And so what happens? Well, they get kicked out of the garden because pride always results in judgment. And you would think that Adam and Eve would sit down with their boys and say, Cain and Abel, I'm telling you what, pride has to go, man, because it's a, it's a bad thing. We used to live over there in that you know, garden and Disney World stuff, but not anymore. So tell you what, get the pride out of your heart. But the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel, uh, God kind of yells at Cain because his sacrifice wasn't right. You know, you would think that that might, if God taught you personally, that might, you'd say, well, okay, I'm sorry, and correct it. But what's he do? Jealousy, envy, his pride. Kills his brother because pride, uh, one of its, its key signs is, is treating others with contempt. So kills his brother. And you would think, I mean, Cain gets banished because pride always ends up in judgment. You'd think that Adam and Eve, who don't see their son anymore, and you'd think Cain would go around, they would say, we're getting pride out because it's a bad thing. But what happens in chapter 11? We've already said this. The whole world gets together and they're building this tower to themselves to reach the sky. They don't need God. Pride. And you need to know, pride is everywhere. It's all over. Pride is within my heart. It's within your heart. And here's what, what God thinks about pride, just so you know. In Proverbs chapter 6, he says that there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. Number one on the list, haughty eyes. That's pride. I think this is amazing when you think about this. That when God created the world, remember he created plants and he said, this is good. And he created land and he said, good. And he created birds and said, it's good. Uh, Everything was good, good. Except for man, he said, this was very good, which is debatable, I guess. But very, very good. You would think he would look at this and say, pride, it's bad. But God... A great economizer of words says, this is detestable. I hate this. It makes me sick. He wants us to know how he feels about pride. Because what pride does is, is it takes those gifts of God. and it, it, it takes them as trophies of myself. Not recognizing God, the relationship is, is, is broken. That's why Proverbs 16 says this. It says, pride goes before destruction 
a haughty spirit before a fall because pride always results in judgment. God's not interested in judgment. But pride leads us down that road. Next text. That's why God says that he opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. The battle lines are drawn. Prideful people, proud one side, God on the other. Uh, And if you thought having Satan against you was a bad deal, just having God against you, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Uh, Pride, you know, how does... You might say, well, you know, I agree with God. I hate prideful people. You know, World Federation wrestlers and some of those pro athletes, you know, I'm the best and I'm so strong. I'm, everyone else can't touch me. And we, we don't like pride, that Muhammad Ali thing. We, we, we don't like that. But you need to know that pride wears a lot of hats. And we don't want to equate pride simply with conceit. Pride can be conceit and, and arrogance and bragging, certainly. That's one of the hats that it wears. But another hat that pride wears is envy and jealousy because see we're all really playing a game king of the hill and I'm supposed to be on top and when I think someone else is on top above me bitterness gossip be signs of of pride Uh, this is the scariest one though for me Uh, it's self-loathing can be pride you know I'm such a jerk. I'm such a worm. I'm such a loser. I just. So my dad used to tell me when he was uh, when I was a little boy. He'd say, "Son, I ain't nothing but a joke." That hurt me as listen. My dad say that, but it's 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 the, the mindset. This is why we think. Well, that sounds humble. Well, that's not that's not humble. That's focusing on me because see, I should be better. I should be on top, and I'm just not, and I'm never going to be able to get there, and it's all me because I wish and I should be able to. And it's, it's, it sounds like it's humility, but it is pride cloaked. And that's where my pride comes out the most, I think, along these lines. Pride is, is manifested in a lot of different ways. So just ask yourself for just a moment. Check out your own heart. Any, any pride lurking anywhere? And so, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, Daniel, what's the interpretation? In verse 19, then Daniel called Belshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belshazzar, that was the name of Nebuchadnezzar's God, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belshazzar answered, my Lord, Daniel answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Now, now, let's go parentheses for just a minute. Because, uh, remember we said the book of Daniel is written to people who are living in a foreign land trying to be godly. So it's really apropos for us. It's got a lot of lessons along those lines. Here, Nebuchadnezzar was not a patron saint. Nebuchadnezzar was, his atrocities are well documented by himself, by the people that he had conquered. Uh, He was a vile, vicious, violent man. He probably, for Daniel, uh, destroyed some of Daniel's family, certainly killed many of Daniel's people, destroyed Daniel's home, uh, destroyed Daniel's, the temple of Daniel's God, he was, he was a, not a friend for Daniel, but look at the way Daniel responds here. 
Daniel does not say, oh, this is a great dream because this dream is vengeance for you, buddy. Stinks to be you, Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> About time, buddy. You're getting what you deserve. He, he was concerned for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, your boss, that person in your life that you just really loathe, that just offers you nothing good, that's just a pain in your neck, uh, you have nothing good to say about them. Is it possible? Is it just possible? That God in his sovereignty has that person there. And that appropriate response to that person is like Jesus on the, on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's, it's a love for them. It's a genuine concern. Daniel's got genuine concern for him. And then he, he, Daniel says, okay, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you the dream. But, you know, I've got some good news and I've got some bad news. Now, first of all, the tree thing. Okay, now that's the good news. See, the tree in the center and it grew so big and it was huge and, and the whole world and all the animals, they were underneath it. That's you. You give protection and you give sustenance and you give, to the whole world, Nebuchadnezzar. That's you. Well, now, this was not news to Nebuchadnezzar. It's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. That's, well, I think that's about correct. And so Daniel says, now the second part. Not, now the not so good news. Verse 20. It says, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You'll be driven away from people. You will live with wild animals, and you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven seven times, probably seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge, there's a verse again, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. That's what God wants Nebuchadnezzar to come away with. And he says in verse 27, Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Now, given advice to a king unasked for, Nebuchadnezzar especially was not a, a wise, was not a safe thing. But Daniel cares for Nebuchadnezzar. So he says, here's my, my advice. You know, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. He says, king, you're... you're Pride is demonstrated with the way you, you treat people, which what pride does is pride makes each of us the queen and everybody else is a pawn. They're expendable and we can use them. And as long as they help me win, that's, they're fine. But other than that, they need to, to go. And so he says, rethink that, king. And you know, as well as I do, you know, if you try to just be kind and nice to people without dealing with the pride thing in your heart, it's going to be really short-lived at best. But you know what's crazy? If you deal with a pride thing in your heart, you almost can't help. It will be natural and normal for you to be kind to other people. So Daniel gives him this counsel, gives him this advice. I, I wonder, what, did, what was Nebuchadnezzar thinking right now? Because probably nobody has sat down with him and told him to repent in his whole life. I can't imagine anybody ever told Nebuchadnezzar anything bad. Matter of fact, I'm looking at this dream... And I definitely don't have any gifts of dream interpretation, right? But I'm looking at this dream, and this is not that difficult of a dream. To, I could give it a shot and probably be pretty close. How come those other wise men all said, I don't know? I think it's because they were going to have to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you're, you're a toast, buddy, and that's not a good thing they want to tell him. I mean, I don't want to tell him that. You tell him that. I'm not telling him that. Uh, we just don't know. I think that's where it came down. But Daniel let him know. And so Nebuchadnezzar, we got the wheels going. What's he thinking? Is, is, he, is he trying to be kind for a while? We don't, we don't know. Is he uh, saying, you know, I just need to think about this for a while? Is he 
saying, you know, this dream is just, just a stupid dream. You know, I, I thought it was something really nothing, and uh, Daniel's just got his God thing going on, and it, it blows him off. Who knows what he's thinking? I, I don't know. But I do know he didn't pay him a lot of counsel because God has to revert to plan B. You know, he'd rather do plan A with us. And parents, isn't it true? Wouldn't you rather do plan A with your children? You say, yeah, I remember pulling my kids aside and saying, listen, you guys, this is the way it works here. I will never, ever spank you. And I will never punish you, ever. Yes. And there will be no disciplines, no timeouts, ever. I said, yeah, as long as you do this. But if you violate this, then what you're telling me is I need to spank you. Now, you control it. Because if you don't violate this, there will be no spankings. Did that always work? Did that ever work? I don't know. No, it's like you got to go with plan B. So God says, okay, let's go with plan B. So all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. So it's a year later. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built? I have built, right? As the, as the royal residence, as my home, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Whatever it was that God was trying to teach him, he certainly didn't learn it. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. No, no, no 12-month delay this time. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you, and you will be driven away from the people, and you will live with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you, until, this is our verse again, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes immediately. So, no, 11, 12 months. What had been said about King Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from people. And ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. I think this is amazing. The guy that controlled the whole world can't even control his own faculties here. uh, Some mental illness has come upon him. Uh, In Qumran, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a, a fragment that's written by uh, Nebuchadnezzar's boy, Nabonidus. We're not sure if it's talking about Nabonidus about Nebuchadnezzar because it's just a fragment, but it mentions how he was ill for seven years. It mentions. But then verse, verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. That raising your eyes towards heaven is not kind of looking up kind of thing. It's a uh, phrase that, that means, get my eyes off me and off my kingdom and my fiefdom and my power and my abilities and my accomplishments and my success and my entitlements and get them where they need to be on God who's the giver of those things. Finally, Verse 17, verse 25, verse 32. That's why this is happening, Nebuchadnezzar, so that you might realize that there is a sovereign God, that it's not you, and that everything you have, he's given you. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar realizes that. He says, And I praised the Most High, and I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. That's all the peoples of the earth, even me, regarded as nothing. Which is 
Nebuchadnezzar has come 180, hasn't he? He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples. He does as he pleases with the, with the peoples of, of earth. That's me. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. You know, the thing that separates us from animals uh, is the fact that we were created in the image of God. Whatever else that means, I'm not convinced it means we're the smartest or we're, but whatever else that means, it means this, that we were created to have relationship with God. Think about relationship for a minute. You recognize God's grace. You recognize his gifts. You embrace the fact that he's God and you're not. Relationship with God. That's what we were created for. And when we decide, we don't want that. When we decide that, no, no, he doesn't give me anything. I've got everything that I, I've earned, what I've got. Then, then we've separated ourselves from God. And we become, we, re- we reject the thing that separates us from animals. And we become more animal-like than we care to think. That's where he was. He says, my advisors and my nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So you ask yourself, why is this text here? I think two lessons. First of all, if you think about the original audience, right? These are Jewish folk who are in exile. They're living in Babylon. They're not in the promised land. Their temple's been destroyed. All the, the promises of God, it seems, are gone. They don't even know. They're living in a foreign land, and maybe they're wondering, is God still, does he still care? Is he still around? Is he, is he real? And it it looks to them that the person who's in control was Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is holding the reins and the epitome of evil. Can you imagine what this would do for them to realize the most powerful one? God has his number. He's in God's hands. Nebuchadnezzar has nothing unless God gives it to him. Now, God doesn't always answer our questions. Why are you giving this person, giving them, why are you giving the way you're giving but what incredible comfort. So let me ask you. What are you afraid of today? When you look at the headlines, when you look at your life, when you, health reports or, or ISIS or, or uh, Supreme Courts. Or, what, what, do you, what, do you, what makes you a little nervous? What do you think? Who do you think is holding the reins to the universe, to your future? And, and by golly, it's scary. The lesson from Daniel 4 is there is a God. And it's not, he doesn't live in Washington, D.C. There, there is a God, and he's not hanging out in the, the, the middle, middle East right now. There is a God sovereign over the world, the whole world. Erie, Pennsylvania, the whole world, your life, mine. And he does as he pleases. We, we, we can trust him. What a comfort. What a, what a comfort in this world. But the text also serves as, as a warning, I believe. Because it's awful easy, isn't it, to get into the Nebuchadnezzar syndrome, to fall prey to what Nebuchadnezzar fell prey to. Um, Deuteronomy 8, fascinating text. He says, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. That the Israelites were getting ready to go into a new land, right? They're getting ready to go into the promised land. But he says, be careful that you don't forget God. 
failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and your gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud. And you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, who led you through this vast and dreadful wilderness, that uh, thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions, who brought you water out of a hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known, to humble you. It's not to make you feel bad about yourself. Remember, humility is to recognize that all these things came from God. There's no way we could have came up with water here in the desert. There's no way we could have come up with bread in the desert. All of these things are gifts from God. That's why he, he did this. So you'd recognize that he's the giver of gifts. You may say to yourself, he knows us. My power and my strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. You know, this is my mighty Babylon that I have built with my mighty powers. My residence is for me. He says, I I know you're going to think this. But remember, the Lord your God, it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. When you think about your life, really, how much control do you have? Did you control where you were born and when you were born? If you were born 12th century Tibet, I think it's fairly safe to say you wouldn't be here today, right? Uh, you, oh, natural abilities, your mind, your mobility. And if you think about your life, we, we think if, if we're honest, we, we know. We have to work hard. But, but we know it's a lot of times it's being in the right place at the wrong time. It's catching a break. It's meeting that one person. It's knowing somebody. And it helps us get to where we are. And if we think about it, we can think of people smarter than us who were very uh, sharp with their money and everything else, but life just crashed for them. That's why 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7 He says this, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Now, here's part of the problem. Many of y'all, myself, maybe all of us, have been told in life that you're useless unless you produce Babylon. You're worthless. It's my, my dad's thing, son, I ain't nothing but... A, a, a joke. And so we work with everything we have so that we can say, uh, is this not my mighty Babylon, my Babylon that I have built with, with, with my strength, is my residence, is this not my, my career and my accounts and my business that I have built, is it, it's not my GPA and 401k and, and Roth IRA that I have built, this is, this is me, other people were foolish and they were doing stupid things with their money and their time and their energies and their gifts, but me, see, I, this, is, this is mine, I built it for me, for my glory, for my significance, and you, you buy that, it says that this is why I'm worth something, and so we're on this quest. And Babylon certainly has its heroes, you know, the people that we want to emulate. Oh, oh, my, oh my goodness. I mean, according to your age, we got Frank Sinatra. You know, I, I did it my way. You got Elvis. He's the king. And if you, you're looking for the manly man, you're going for Harrison Ford or Johnny Depp. They always get out. They, they, they succeed in what they do. You got Warren Buffett or Mark Zuckerberg. They did okay, I think, by themselves, didn't they? They, they were all right. Uh, you got Taylor Swift or Justin Bieber or, or Tom Cruise or Tom Brady. And I don't know anything about those people. I don't 
know them personally, but certainly from Babylon's perspective, we look at them and say, this is their mighty, mighty career, their Babylon, that they built it. Oh, they, they, they put it through with their talent and their perseverance. When other people gave up on them, they didn't give up on themselves and, and they built this for them. We want to be like that. Percy Shelley, uh, probably his most famous sonnet, uh, titled Ozymandias. And in his poem, talks about a, a traveler in an antique land who comes across in the sand two big legs. And was a, a statue from some era gone past. And a ways away, he sees the head half buried in the sand, but he sees the scowl of pride on its face. And then he goes and looks at the, the pedestal that it sat on, and it says, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, you mighty, and despair. And the author says he looks around, and all he sees is, is decay. And it's a reminder to us of the things that we fight for, the gifts that God has given us, when we make them primary things, when we call them our own trophies, they, 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 cosmic plagiarism that leads us to, to judgment. Of uh, 539, Cyrus, uh, king of Persia, came to Babylon. You know, I can't get through these walls of Babylon. No one can. But while the folk inside Babylon were in this drunken festival, uh, Cyrus diverted the Euphrates. And so his entire army marched right into Babylon, took the city away from the Babylonians. Several years later, Alexander the Great took it away from Cyrus. And after Alexander died, the whole thing just kind of imploded. Today, Babylon, great Babylon, it's in dust, it's in decay. Let me, let me read you about another king, though. Another kingdom. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, Nebuchadnezzar, Ozymandias, Ramses, they will come before Jesus and they will bow. Nebuchadnezzar will finally have to bow, huh? We have that date as well. And so let me, let me ask you, are you going through something right now that's just beastly stuff? It's just beastly stuff. Is there a possibility, just a possibility, that somehow sovereign God is in the midst of that? And he is waiting for you to raise your eyes to heaven. Is there a possibility? Maybe you're, you're so... Uh, Animal-like, you don't, you don't, animals don't know they're animals. You, you don't even know your, your spiritual peril. And I don't know how to address that uh, other than to pray that God's Spirit would pull on your heart a little and you would open your eyes. Maybe you're like Nebuchadnezzar at the 11th month. Pfft, nothing's happening, everything's fine. He's thinking things are great. 
But you need to know, pride always brings judgment. Sometimes down here, sometimes beyond. When we take the gifts God has given us, and we don't recognize them as gifts, we, we consider them as trophies, exhibits to our greatness. That's when we separate ourselves from God. And that, that gives us uh, a place where there's no way, as we try to live in Babylon, that we would uh, live in a way to honor, honor him.